Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Sean and Stuart, great to be in conversation with you again for our regular weekly roundtable. Hey guys, uh, how are you doing? Great to be here. Okay, let's uh, let's dig into uh, as we usually do on this program. Two big stories in the news that we think could warrant some uh, additional reflection and analysis. Our goal here, listeners, uh, hub subscribers, is to hopefully leave you with some new insights, maybe a bit of additional texture on uh, the week that was and. Sean and Stuart, we got have to start with the uh, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so much has been covered here, you know, to a better or lesser degree, uh, with finesse or not, by the rest of the media. So I, I don't want to focus on events on the ground. I want to talk more about with both of you about the the kind of public backdrop uh, with which we've seen this incredible acceleration over the last ten days of. Um, of a reaction, a kind of cathartic um, yell from uh, the Western democracies at Putin and uh, this horrible act that is playing out before our eyes. And I'd like to talk with you a bit about your thoughts as to the, the origins of this kind of outwelling of public anger, how it's now being expressed in a series of remarkable uh, financial and um, and banking sanctions, but beyond that, you know, whole security doctrines, you know, Germany for 40 years, never importing weapons to conflict zones is suddenly sending surface to air missiles into the Ukraine uh, with the intent and purpose of killing Russian soldiers. So Sean, kick us off. What What's going on here? Why has the public mood been just so vociferous? And how is this pressuring, do you think, policymakers and politicians? I think this is a big item for discussion. Um, we've gone from a policy of mostly neglect vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine for a series of weeks and months when it when the American intelligence agencies were screaming at the top of their lungs that an invasion was coming, and yet you couldn't get um, most Western leaders, and certainly not West, most Western populations, all that animated. And within um, a handful of days, we've seen, as you say, extraordinary actions on the part of Western governments, sanctions, uh, uh, exporting of, of weapons, um, renewed commitments to expand military spending more generally. Um, and at the, at the population level, um, uh, we've seen just an extraordinary outpouring of support um, for Ukraine and Ukrainians on one hand. On the other hand, we've seen some really weird reactions from uh, different individuals and entities. 
Um, the uh, Canadian Hockey League is banning mm -hmm. Russian and, and Belarusian junior players from the import draft. The International Cat Federation is uh, banning Belarusian and Russian cats from participating in their competitions. And so there's a kind of fascinating sociological question here. What has um, led to this kind of 180? Um, uh, and, and, you know, we can talk about that. But then there's the kind of broader uh, question of what this all means for um, the, the conflict at hand. And I worry a bit that this seesawing from uh, neglect to overreaction um, may kind of counterintuitively make um, the, the resolution of this conflict even more challenging, that, um, that this kind of overreaction uh, on the part of governments uh, will make it harder for Vladimir Putin um, to, in effect, stand down. And so um, it's, a, it, it's a kind of fascinating, as I say, sociological um, experiment uh, on the role of social media um, in, the, in, in a conflict and the way that um, um, influences uh, both uh, the public policy and at the population level. Yeah, fascinating stuff. What's your your take? So you're our man on the ground there in Ottawa. Uh, you know, variety of debates in the House of Commons this week. Uh, I was talking to one MP who said that they had never really felt in a long, long time this level of public civic angst and kind of energy pouring through their constituency office phone lines and email inboxes. Um, you know, what's the mood in Ottawa? Are we on a kind of war footing? Yeah, I think that it is a reflection of the public mood. And I, if you look at how, you know, I'm looking at myself, how did I react to this? And what was kind of driving my reactions? And um, I, you know, I, I was feeling like I think a lot of people were feeling, which is like extreme um, concern for Ukrainians and um, a little bit of hostility towards um, Vladimir Putin and maybe Russia as a whole. Um, and I, I, it's kind of an interesting thing if you can detach yourself from, you know, the, the reality of it, of the, the suffering of how these kinds of, you know, jingoistic moments happen. Um, you know, we think about the, the internment camps in World War II and you think, how could people have done that? And now we're banning Russian cats from, you know, coming to Canada. And it's, there's an element of absurdity to it, but also it's coming from some real place in your gut. Um, and I think a lot of this is driven by, um, you know, two things that I'm, it's interesting to see happen, you know, before my eyes, which is war leadership from Zelensky. I think a lot of people were quite taken by that. And, you know, I've read about Churchill and I have some kind of academic idea of what his presence meant for the war effort in World War II and what leadership means to the war effort. But it is really interesting to watch it play out in real time. And with social media, we are literally watching it play out in real time. And the other part of it is propaganda. Um, we are um, being inundated by propaganda. Some of it's true, some of it's not. I think we should be um, we should be cold-eyed about that. That we're seeing things that are purely propagandistic coming in sort of a pro-Ukraine way, and we're getting a lot less of it um, from Russia. And it's interesting. I don't know for sure why that is, but I think maybe there was a miscalculation on the part of the Russians here, which is that they didn't want their people to know how bad this was going to be. So they were trying to keep it quiet. They thought it would be done a lot quicker than it obviously will be now. Um, 
and they thought they could get away with that. But, you know, we have had years of hearing about the Russian propaganda effort, troll farms, electing Donald Trump. Um, and these people were supposed to be omnipotent. Um, maybe that's not the case. Maybe they mm -hmm. are actually pursuing some kind of propaganda effort that's just not getting through. Um, so I think when we look at the reaction in Ottawa, politicians are, I think, reacting as people the way we all are, but they're also reflecting what we're all seeing on CNN and in our social media feeds. So um, that's what it is. And I think mm -hmm. that we have to really balance this, you know, the, the positive side of it, which is that it's nice to have Canada speaking in one voice and sharing concern for something out there. Um, but there is a negative element to it. Sean touched right. on that. And uh, we've, we've seen this in previous wars. Yeah. Yeah. So just to build on that, um, I, I, there's some interesting analog that needs to be, maybe you can stir commission a, a think piece for us next week on this, an interesting kind of analog between um, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, the killing of George Floyd, which rightly elicited uh, almost instantaneously this massive sea change in public awareness and perceptions uh, ignited by the anger of the injustice of, uh, of George Floyd's murder. Um, and that spurred uh, a whole series of important conversations and reforms and um, the energy of that movement was remarkable and just how quickly it spread. And I think what maybe Putin has somehow, again, miscalculated or misunderstood is that as Tom Friedman penned a piece in the, in the uh, New York Times today or this week, you know, this is a, a wired world war. And in the same way that the George Floyd killing uh, just shocked people's sensibilities and kindled their moral outrage, I think the invasion of Ukraine has done the, the exact same thing and the result is that all of us and this is maybe the the less than great part of this story is all of us have on social media because of social media in a sense these very public identities you know we're not simply what we used to be our parents generation you know private citizens who had concerns who went to polling stations every four years to express those concerns in a democratic system we now express these concerns in real time and we treat tweet directly at our institutions and political leaders. And it is raw, vociferous uh, civic energy, just like pouring across these channels. And my concern here is that it boxes in the space within which, you know, some really difficult conversations are now gonna have to happen over the coming weeks about how to deescalate this, this conflict. And there, is probably going to have to be at some point some kind of deal with Putin. And to what extent can our political leadership, can the Biden administration do the deal that's necessary without having the never Chamberlain kind of appeasement trophy, you know, awarded to them by not just their political opponents, but possibly a large segment of their population. And this would just be my final point to throw it back to both of you is that, you know, and the Black Lives Matter approach is we were fighting against police brutality, systematic police brutality. And that is a legitimate target that we needed to focus energy on. We have another legitimate target this time, Vladimir Putin and, his, and the moral stain that his regime now bears. 
but they are a little bit different than your local police department. This is a great power. It has awesome conventional cyber and nuclear capability and the extent to which you know great powers behave differently they're allowed to behave differently it's an unfortunate fact of history it pisses us off morally but we do have to treat russia differently than we would the cleveland P police department uh, there are existential and other escalatory risks here that we've got to wrap our heads around fast and Sean, I mean, am I wrong? Are we, do our politicians, do our institutions have the ability to pivot now, to pivot to the next phase of this conflict after the cathartic indignation, which is de-escalation, negotiation, and some kind of detente? Uh, I, I think I think that's precisely the right question, and I'm I think there's reason to be to be worried um, that on one hand the kind of moral reaction um, that we have all had um, is a, a, a positive uh, sign that we in this age of decadence can still be um, riled by um, you know when faced with uh, with such injustice, um, but we we can't make these decisions um, moving forward. Um, animated by our passions. Um, this, as you say, Rudyard, is going to require a degree of, of, of statesmanship and a degree of uh, dispassion um, because, because of the serious um, threat um, that um, further escalation represents, not just to Ukraine and Ukrainian people, um, but Europe and the world more, more broadly. And um, I don't know who fills that void right now. It's certainly not Vladimir Putin. Um, on one hand, um, but I'm not sure it's Joe Biden either. Biden has been um, mostly taken a back seat to Europe, European leaders um, uh, on on these issues, and so I, I think it's a it's a big question. Um, if I could just put one to you, though, Rudyard, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning um, that we have some written and unwritten conventions to to guide us in these types of uh, conflicts. Um, one of the interesting developments of this use of, of increasingly sophisticated uh, financial technologies and, and, um, and cyber uh, attacks and so on, I mean, to what extent is there a risk that uh, this thing tips into um, greater and greater escalation because we, we don't quite have a frame to think about um, these uh, different strategies and tactics available? Maybe just put mm -hmm. bluntly, you know, we know that we're not going to put boots on the ground, that that would be perceived as a provocation. But why is that a provocation and, um, and de-swifting Russia, not a, a similar provocation? How, how should we think about um, these mm -hmm. different tactics in the age of kind of modern warfare? Yeah, look, the scenario that's been keeping me up at night, you know, this week is uh, imagine a Polish Ford operating base that receives delivery of a thousand javelin uh, anti-aircraft missiles from germany and it's uh, a base in poland in proximity to the ukraine border with the intention that you know ukraine partisans are going to bring those missiles over at night under cover of darkness to kill russian soldiers that's the perp an airman that's the purpose of it we get that the russian military says this is a viable target. This is an imminent threat. 
and orders a ballistic missile strike on that forward operating uh, base controlled and owned by the Polish military. You know, what do we do at that moment? I think, look, much smarter people are wargaming these things out right now. But this is what, you know, I hear talking to experts. And this is the funny thing. This is the moment we kind of need the experts again. You know, all the the trashing of elites uh, that's gone on. This is the moment where you actually need diplomats and international security experts and, you know, military experts who can figure these things out before they happen. And more importantly, I was glad to see at the end of this week that the U.S. government has announced a, a de-confliction line with the Russian military. So they're direct military to military communication. But guys, you know, the risks here of escalation are are not insignificant. And I think what's going to happen, at least I've felt it, is a pivot from indignation and catharsis to anxiety and uh, uncertainty about how this now plays out is it's obvious that Putin tactically on the ground is bogged down and strategically has suffered immense consequences financially uh, to his economy, to his central bank, to the seizing of his foreign reserves. So th this is a very dicey moment that I think has analogies to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think we all just need to take a breath and we all need to think a bit about these elites and these policymakers and be a little bit sympathetic to them that A, they need the space to have these conversations in and B, they're probably gonna end up making a deal which we don't like and that Twitter doesn't like. Am I wrong there, Stuart? I think that if you declare that Twitter will not like something, you got a pretty good bet that <laughs> you're going to be right. <laughs> um, I, I think that's exactly right. And this is something that when you look at the Cold War, as it seems a little cut and dry, but it definitely wasn't. There weren't a lot of red lines because in these kind of conflicts, you can't have red lines because you need to leave that space to de-escalate. And this is something that's been happening in the cyber world for a long time is we don't have a good sense of what what is an actual attack? Um, you don't have troops crossing borders the same way you do uh, in conventional warfare, and um, you know it, the servers and you know the the way the internet works. You can't really have that line the way you normally would. So this is something we're figuring out, and something that is concerning about all this is that when um, weapons are innovated, when there's a big innovation in weapons, it tends to lead to a really messy conflict after that. And I think that should be the really, the big focus of the world right now is making sure that doesn't happen. I, we're not necessarily talking about conventional weapons that literally kill a person. So maybe there's a different um, situation here, but you know, when we're talking about the ravages on the Russian economy that will be coming soon, people will die. I and mean, that is something you have to take into account here is that, um, you know, the way the economy goes, if it goes down, this is something we've talked about in COVID-19, um, it has consequences. So um, I think this is something we're going to be talking about a lot, um, whether it's in this conflict itself, but maybe in conflicts down the road, because I think we've set a few precedents here. Mm -hmm. Well, when we come back from this short break, we're going to dig into the other big uh, issue we want to unpack for you on this hub roundtable. That's what's happening 
to the Conservative Party of Canada. Leadership is uh, rumored to be kicking off. Um, candidates edging up to a proverbial starting line. Uh, we're going to try to handicap some of the early supposed front runners for you again right after this short break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Welcome back to The Hub's weekly roundtable. I'm in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor Chief, Stuart, uh, let me start with you because you are, again, our guy in Ottawa. What's the latest on the conservative leadership? Who's who's in, uh, who's not in, and maybe more, more importantly, who's kind of dipping their toes in the uh, the pools of, of uh, I don't know, beer-soaked steins at the, uh, the local <laughs> pubs of Ottawa to try to drum up support for their candidacy? Yeah, so we know for sure that Pierre Polyev is in. Um, that I, I think that he is pretty widely seen as a front runner. I think um, there aren't many people who could enter the race. There aren't many plausible people who could enter the race who could take that from him. Um, and, and then you know, Jean Chray was in town. He was meeting with MPs. He was kind of trying to get a sense of what's going on. And I think for Chray. He, I mean, he said this, that the rules are important as to whether or not he will um, be in the race. And now we know that the leader will be chosen in September. There's about a three-month period of signing people up for memberships. So that that's not a, an incredibly long time, but it's 90 not- 90 days. <laughs> yeah, it's not a super short time either. So um, I think probably there was a little bit of um, diplomatic um, stuff going on there with sort of not giving mm -hmm. Pierre Polyev the super short race that he would want and not giving Sheree a super long race. So if that's how they're thinking, that would make sense to me. Um, and then, you know, th that I think that tells you something that for Polyev, if he doesn't have to sign up a whole bunch of new people um, to win the race, it means that people who are already conservatives are probably on his side. Um, and if you're Jean Charest, you're looking for a whole new cast of characters to vote for you uh, in the elections. So um, that th there's a lot of political dynamics here. One is that Polyev is obviously a polarizing figure, and there's a lot of different people will tell you different things about how much that matters um, in a general election or even in the conservative leadership race. So that could mean if the if the Tories are thinking about electability, they will probably take a second thought about that. That is Pierre Polyev the guy that you go to the suburban ridings and convince people who live there who don't really know a lot about politics um, to vote for the conservatives. Um, some people say yes, some people say no. Um, Sheree, like, the, he's a polarizing figure. He's a polarizing figure in my own brain. Um, so I, I can imagine that being a total flop and I can imagine 
you know, something happening there. Because if you have Pierre um, Polyev being the polarizing figure he's reputed to be, it does create space for sort of a more conventionally uh, electable type um, if the conservatives think that they're just focused on winning right now. Yeah. So, Sean, let me tr try uh, just a quick recent historical analogy out for you and see if it, it makes any sense in trying to handicap this race, if it is between Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest as the sense of front runners at this point. You know, go back to Doug Ford's victory in Ontario over, um, you know, Christine Elliott. There you had a very established candidate, Miss Elliott, former wife of uh, Jim Flaherty, the finance minister, experienced cabinet minister in her own right um, in various uh, Ontario conservative governments. Ford comes in polarizing, divisive, but the energy around those very same characteristics ultimately make him um, the new leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. You know, how are you handicapping this, Sean? I think there is something to that analogy um, uh, that Doug Ford in that leadership cycle uh, was well aligned with where the energy was amongst progressive conservative party members um, and a more temperamentally and ideologically moderate candidate like Christine Elliott just couldn't connect with where um, where the where the energy resided. Um, the other analogy uh, worth mentioning is there was another candidate in that race, you recall, uh, Carolyn Mulroney. Um, and one of the problems, of course, in that case was um, that these two relatively centrist candidates um, between the two of them um, effectively split the vote, uh, which only reinforced Doug Ford's um, strength as a kind of populist outsider. Um, this time around at the federal level, uh, the, the centrists are, uh, because of the way that the voting works, whereby you need to get 50% plus one, it seems to me for someone like Mr. Charest, if he goes head to head against Pierre Polyev, he is in big, big trouble because of um, just Polyev. Polyev speaks to conservative voters with muscle memory. I mean, he, he understands them and he understands the issues that animate them, particularly in the, the kind of present moment. If uh, though we see other centrist candidates enter the race, uh, some speculation that Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown might get involved, longstanding conservative writer Tasha Carendon has, um, has um, been rumored to be um, thinking about running. You know, th the one way in which a Brown or Sheree might kind of win this almost inadvertently is if after a first ballot, Pierre Polyev isn't quite at the 50% mark, um, but on the other hand, he doesn't have a lot of room for growth. And you see these centrist candidates almost in effect push each other over the line. But let's not talk about tactics here. Let's just kind of go big picture. And, and it mm -hmm. seems to me the big challenge that Jean Charest is going to have is persuading conservative members that he's one of them. You know, his message in the past week or so has been that his claim to conservatism is uh, reflected in his commitment to fiscal conservatism, that as um, premier of Quebec, he led a relatively fiscally conservative government. I'm not sure that's going to be enough um, to sell conservatives that he, that he embodies um, the, the kind of present energy and, and priorities of 
conservative voters. Um, you know, it seems to me in a lot of ways, conservatives are increasingly motivated by issues around culture, you know, um, uh, concerns about identity politics and so-called wokeism and all of the rest. And, um, and I'm just not sure that Mr. Charest's um, personal comportment um, and his kind of ideological commitments um, lend themselves um, to, um, to, to, to the current moment. Yeah. So Stuart, just to remind listeners and remind me, the leadership changes were not substantial in terms of the rules, right? Like this isn't one member, one vote. We haven't blown up what is in fact a fairly, uh, I don't know, existing membership friendly. This is a really clumsy way to say this, but existing membership friendly way of selecting the leader, which is all these different ridings with points associated with them. So you, you have to kind of battle it out you know, at the riding level and you can't just swamp a leadership with a big ad buy that, you know, activates a uh, hundred thousand members at a dollar a pop. Yeah, that's right. The one big change I think will be, they'll try not to be announcing the winner at 1am or whatever it was last time <laughs> with the technical problems. So yeah. um, I, I think Sean's points are so right. Like th this, the charade thing I think has bigger problems beyond just his own candidacy, which is that there is an energy in the prairie provinces right now that is um, something the party is going to have to deal with. Um, and, and there's sort of a populist sense out there um, that they will either have to bring in and kind of gentrify it and bring it into the mainstream party tent or leave it outside the tent. And I I don't have any strong opinions about whether that's possible or not, because there are fringe elements associated with it. This is mostly to do with the pandemic restrictions, um, but I can't imagine that energy is going to be gone by September. So this is what they're going to have to deal with. And I truly wonder what will happen if Sheree happens to win this leadership, because, you know, maybe it's just because I've been doing a lot of reading on the history of the reform party party lately, but um you could imagine a fissure happening. I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine there's people in Alberta thinking this is the guy we want to represent us um, in the House of Commons. Um, so I, I think this could get existential. Um, I, I can't imagine. The, the, the thing with Sheree, too, is that when you listen to him talk, there is no sense that he understands the gravity of the problem or the magnitude of the problem that he may be encountering. So um, it could be that there's just an out-of-touch element of the party that doesn't quite understand what it's getting itself into here. And I, you know, I don't want to sound apocalyptic here, but it, it could be the existence of the party. I mean, that that's what happened in the nineties um, when the party got so out of touch that people decided to create their own. So I, I think that is actually on the table here. May, may I just Sh say something? Yeah, right Sean, now? let's give you uh, the last word I was on just today's say, round table. I spoke to a, um, a group out in Vancouver um, earlier this week and my advice to them in terms of how they uh, how they engage different candidates, whether it's Mr. Sheree, Mr. Polyev, or someone else, is the question they should be asking these candidates is, what's their plan to raise the party's ceiling of support while at the same time not letting the floor collapse under it? I mean, that uh, fundamentally, that's the challenge before the party, that it has a high floor, a solid floor of support, but a low ceiling. And over the past couple of election cycles, we've seen different leaders experiment in different ways. In the case of Mr. Shear, Andrew Shear, you know, he stabilized the floor, that's for sure, but he didn't make any progress on, on the ceiling. Uh, Aaron O'Toole placed so much emphasis on trying to raise the ceiling, 
he saw that the floor started to come out underneath him. And we saw the People's Party's national support raised to five, five percentage points. And so the question before Mr. Polyev or Shrey or anyone else is, on one hand, how can you ensure that the party's base of support doesn't collapse, doesn't, as, as uh, Stuart says, um, migrate to other parties on the right? Well, on the same token, you need to raise the party ceiling support if you're going to compete for national elections. That question is really what ought to animate um, party members as they consider the different options before them. That is the kind of balancing act um, that this party and its uh, next leader will will need to will need to manage if it, if it's going to ultimately be successful. Thanks, Sean, and thank you, Stuart, guys, for uh, another edition of uh, the Hub Dialogue Roundtable. Uh, look forward to doing this all again next week. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.